welcome to Mushroom Hour. Today on Mushroom Hour, we're joined by the magnanimous Martin Osis. Martin is passionate about wild mushrooms. He loves to look at them, touch them, smell them, taste them, and talk about them. For decades, he has been educating and entertaining people and groups about mushrooms through talks, forays, workshops, identification courses, and just going on and on and on about mushrooms to pretty much anyone who will listen. His enthusiasm about mushrooms makes him a sought-after speaker at many mycological functions. Although he's an amateur mycologist, he is generally regarded as one of Alberta's experts in mushroom field identification, constantly studying emerging scientific papers on mycology, as well as scouring the diverse habitats to see what species might be growing there in Alberta. His particular interest in medicinal mushrooms comes from a strong desire to help people get and stay healthy. Other interests include fungal biodiversity, DNA sequencing of fungi, mushroom photography, and of course, edible fungi. As one of the founding members of the Alberta Mycological Society, he has been a major contributor to AMS and has created several projects, including the ever-popular Great Alberta Mushroom Foray, held in a different location annually in Alberta. He was also the driver in the formation of the Medicinal Mushroom Committee at NAMA, and he is currently on the advisory board of My Fungi, an Alberta mushroom company developing expertise in psilocybin production for research, mushroom grow kits, and microremediation. Martin, thank you so much for joining us on the Mushroom Hour. Oh, you're welcome. It'll be fun. It'll be really fun, and I am excited to get someone on the show with such a breadth and depth of experience in all these different aspects of mushrooms and fungi. And, you know, one of the places that... I, the place we usually start is with that origin story. You know, how did Martin Osis turn from, you know, unsuspecting citizen to mycophile and fungi obsessed? What were some of the key steps in that process? As uh, my background is Latvian or heritage is Latvian. So we're Northern European, which means that as children, we went out and picked mushrooms with uh, grandparents and parents and stuff like that. So I had that early connection with going out and picking mushrooms and, and family cooking with mushrooms and eating mushrooms. And all of that was, was really interesting. And I kind of lost touch a little bit with, with all of that stuff, um, through my teen years when I was occupied by other pursuits. But eventually I kind of got back to it and I remember wandering, uh, having gone fishing and wandering back from uh, catching a couple of fish and, and seeing all these mushrooms on the ground and thinking, gosh, this is what I should do. I should learn which ones I can eat and cook them up with my mushrooms. It seems like a, or cook them up with my fish. And it seems like the uh, perfect combination. So I thought, well, that's easy enough. I know a bunch of mushrooms already and I'll go and learn the few three, four rules to gather to gather wild mushrooms and wild edibles, and uh, and off we go. So from there, from there, I actually looked around for a course. Actually, I picked up a field guide, uh, Orson Miller's uh, Mushrooms of North America, and kind of one of the first pictorial guides for the mushrooms, uh, mushrooms that came out, I think in the in the late seventies, early eighties. So I picked up those, and I was absolutely shocked because our family, what we picked mostly, were russulas. So as I go through the Russell 
section of the book, you know, don't eat any of these. All of these are poisonous. And I'm the, oh my God, you know, what's going on? And I'm kind of freaked out. So I kind of decided to, uh, to try and take some courses and, and courses are at that point were really, really hard to find. And there was one at the uh, University of uh, Alberta Botanic Garden and, and I could never get into it. But, uh, uh, Dr. Kura, who was the mycologist there, he mentioned, well, there's a society starting up. And, and so I ended up showing up at one of the founding meetings and, uh, with this drive to learn the, the three or four rules to be able to go out and pick mushrooms. So that's kind of the background, how I got into the organization. But I know I was out with my mom picking and kind of getting more and more of this interest in, in fungi and, and different things. I would ask her, what's this one? What's this one? And she says, well, I don't know those ones and I don't know that one. She says, but my grandmother, she used to know them all. And I thought, oh, what a terrible thing, you know, that here's this phenomenal woman who can identify, you know, hundreds of mushrooms and knows all of the mushrooms that are growing in her community or in, in around her farm and stuff like that. And all of this, all of this knowledge just goes into the ground when she passes away and it's just lost. And I kind of thought to myself, well, you know, I think if I learn this stuff, I'm going to see if I can share it and, and, and make sure that that knowledge that, that a lot of times is really, really earned through a difficult process is, is passed on. And, uh, and I had a little bit of a special, um, a special reason for, for kind of dipping into that world as well. When I left high school, I went to university and I was studying theology. And, uh, so that was kind of my interest. And, and within a couple of years of studying theology in a little bit more depth, I realized that, man, I could never take an ordination vow, you know, because, I just way too challenged by all of this stuff. And I, and I just don't believe it. And, and, uh, and my father had really good advice. He said, well, you know, you can't just throw this old stuff out that's been around for a long time until you find something to replace it. And, and that was kind of the big question for me is, you know, what am I going to, what am I going to replace this, this traditional belief that, that I was, uh, raised in and, uh, and going back to kind of biblical, references because again that's that's within my formative formative years one of the things that struck out uh, struck to me was that you shall you shall know him by his works so that's kind of what i ended up focused with you know i i decided that the bible was generally a fairly unreliable source of really really good information so what i thought i'd do is i'd start taking a look at the natural world and from there, I kind of started delving into plants and, and, and the way things grew and, and then really started focusing and was absolutely captivated by the mushrooms because, well, they're just so cool. And so that's kind of, yeah, that's kind of where, where it all started a long time ago. And so many questions and topics we could talk about with that incredible story and inevitably, the intimate relationship one develops with the natural world through the lens of mycology. You know, yeah, I want to find edible mushrooms. Suddenly you learn how they work. You learn about ecosystems and it does take on spiritual connotations. So I'm not surprised to kind of hear that connection for you as a budding theologist and then someone who became a naturalist. Uh, those things seem to come together. And also myself, I actually 
I have Latvian heritage. And up until I got into mycology, I didn't realize the significance of that and didn't realize it kind of explained maybe some some of the obsession of mushrooms because you could say it's, I mean it's in the blood you know Eastern European countries and Baltic countries uh, so I really loved hearing that you're from Latvia my ears perked up at that and then this idea of rusulas being edible I, I can't let that one pass us by so for you are rusulas edible are they good are they choice now your palate's probably changed since all these years foraging now in North America. But, but what's our verdict about Ruslas? Because I've heard this one thrown around a lot, and it's one that people find a lot out in the woods. Well, exactly. And they're just a really, really tough, tough group to deal with. I don't think there's a lot of um, research, or there's been some research done, but it's not really well documented. And the, and the Russula species seem to be able to evolve really quickly, so they're constantly changing. So Russulas are, are one of my favorites. They are a good edible, and and again, I struggled for many years not wanting to eat them and kind of getting the feel of, you know, what I can eat and what I can't eat. And I think we're going to jump all over the place. One of the one of the things that, that I we did with the Alberta Mycological Society, or that I did with the Alberta Mycological Society, we can dig a little bit deeper into this, is to do these great Alberta mushroom forays, and, and they're really a biodiversity foray. So it's a way to get a whole bunch of people together and look at all of these different um, biomes in Alberta, because, you know, we go from, from desert to prairie to boreal forest to parkland to, to you know, to montane and, and, and all of that. So, so we're really quite diverse um, in what we see. So we see lots of different places. So... We go to different places, and when we go, and uh, I kind of laugh, you know, people ask me, you know, you know, what are the Alberta Forties all about? And I, I always kind of say, well, they're about me, you know, and, you know, and anybody else can come around, come along for the ride, but it's about me. You know, I want to learn the local mushrooms that I have, and I would love to bring in experts from all over the world to basically teach me about my mushrooms that grow in my backyard. Well, most experts won't come just for that reason, and but but they will come for a biodiversity survey. And so within the Mycological Society, well, it's not just me, you know, it's 50, 60, 70, 80 people are coming um, that have come out to these things. And so all of a sudden, I've got a group big enough that'll justify these people to come. And uh, so at one point, we reached out to a Latvian mycologist um, from the... Uh, from the Museum of Natural History in Riga, and we paid her way over here, and I got to tour around Alberta and and, and have her come for a foray. And so we got to ask the Russell a question, and I said, so the book says I can only eat the odd rare one, and she tells me that you can eat every one. And basically the whole trick, well, I will say you can... You shouldn't be eating anything, you know, kind of in the, uh, anything that's staining black or, or bruising black and especially black and red, those ones. And those are kind of like that, uh, that group or kind of in, in the, you know, the, the russellas that look a little bit more like lactarius, like, um, like the, uh, russella brevipes and, and some of those ones. But generally all the other ones are a go and, uh, they basically say is if you boil all of them and you neutralize the acids in them, away you go and you can eat them. And 
And so, well, I'm still a little bit nervous about that. So I, at least I try and get down to species, uh, or get down to, get down to a group that I know that's fairly safe and, and, and whatnot. But I find that, that they're amazing. You know, I mean, even, even what's really kind of cool with them is that the more you cook them, you know, the kind of more solid they become. And, and so literally you can, uh, you can boil them till you've boiled the water away. And if you have a little butter or oil with them, you end up crisping this mushroom. And it's one of the tastiest fried mushrooms, you know, that, that you find. And, uh, and with a little bit of, uh, well, a little bit of brandy and a little bit of cream, you just end up with something that's pretty amazing. And, uh, and there's lots of them. Well, it sounds divine and certainly puts Rusula in new light when I'm out foraging. Uh, and not to nitpick this too much, but you said Rusula brevipes, ones that look like Rusula brevipes. Now that, I think, the most common connotation for me and maybe other listeners is as the as the host species for Hypomyces lactiflorum. So in your experience, is Rusula brevipes, you know, sans parasitic orange lobster mushroom, uh, sans that Hypomyces, is it not a great edible? Actually, it's not a bad edible. I've eaten it. One of the interesting things with, with, I find with especially Rusula brevipes, and I've got a long story about, actually about, uh, Hypomyces lactiflorum, uh, lactiflorum. That's one of actually one of my favorite mushrooms. And, uh, and, uh, so what I, what I find is that to some degree, you have to be mindful of these really, really long lived mushrooms, you know, so Russell brevipes is one of them. You'll find it the next spring, dried up little black thing. And, 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 uh, so whatever it has, it's got, it's got enough, um, antimicrobial compounds in it that, you, that are going to, that are going to, well, disrupt the microbiome. So I think a lot of times you have to remember that you have a microbiome and, uh, and that you have to be a little bit careful with this stuff here that you're not disrupting your microbiome enough and and getting right into right into the lobster mushroom which again is one of my favorite ones so within the in the last few years there has been more and more reports showing up of poisonings from uh, from lobster mushrooms and and that's kind of in the uh, nama poison poison mushroom registry kind of through michael bugue and and whatnot. So it seems that what's happening with those, and it seems that it's only the really old ones that are causing the problem. The ones that look a little bit bruised or actually get that really deep red color. They've kind of changed from the orange to that deep red color. And those ones are causing people some, some gastrointestinal distress. So Paul Kroger, I don't know if you're familiar with him, Paul is another amateur mycologist who's who's carved out a professional career in in mycology, and uh, and he has been running the Sycamus Mushroom Festival in Central BC for many many years. And I had gone and picked a big basket full of these lobster mushrooms, and uh, and Paul says, "Oh, be careful with these." And he says, "Watch these older older lobster mushrooms." And he says, "Cause we're getting poisoning reports." Um, so he works part. Uh, he works with uh, herbarium in at the University of British Columbia in the mycological department. And he said we took a bunch of this stuff, and 
what we did is uh, we basically made made some extracts and tried them out on six different bacterial cultures, and it wiped them all out. So, again, kind of makes sense. So I got a Russula brevipes, which this mushroom is growing on, really long-lived, and now I end up with a lobster mushroom, which even makes it longer-lived. And uh, so whatever this mushroom has, this mushroom has a tremendous amount of uh, antibacterial capacity. So I kind of listened to that and thought, hmm, fascinating. That's exactly the kind of stuff that I'm really interested in. And so instead of thinking, this is a problem, I'm taking these mushrooms back and and now I'm tincturing them and, and doing work with them to make antibacterials. And, and, and that's basically what I've been doing with them. And they work phenomenally well, you know, and, and I use them topically on, uh, I use actually most of my medicinal mushrooms I use topically, but that's another rabbit hole we can, we can go down. I want to make sure we don't skip that rabbit hole, but that is absolutely fascinating. I had never heard that about either Brevipes or Hypomyces lactiflorum, this idea that there are really effective antibacterials. Part of the reason people might get sick on eating it, throwing off the microbiome, you know, this is where we start to get in kind of deeper and deeper layers of exploring edible fungi. And I guess then lay out for us maybe a little bit about that fungal diversity in Alberta. Because uh, you laid out how it's this mixture of biomes. I know there are loads of mushroom lovers that live there. Uh, but, you know, what is that picture of fungal diversity? And then maybe any commentary on how well mapped out it is or how far is left to go in your experience of doing these, basically these biodiversity surveys. Well, the biodiversity surveys ended up, well, again, you know, the, the came out of the Alberta foray or the Great Alberta Mushroom Foray, which was all about me, about me trying to learn the mushrooms that grow in the area. Um, and we've had some amazing people that have, that we've had from all over the world coming, coming out to these events. And it blows me away, the stuff that we find. I mean, every year we're finding lots of unnamed species, you know. So typically in a big foray, you know, everybody brings their mushrooms in and you look at them and, uh, and you get the names on all the common ones and, and you kind of put those on display. And then you have all of these tables that have all of these mushrooms that nobody can identify. And, uh, one of our forays in 2010, it was our, uh, Lenny Schalkwick Memorial foray. She's kind of the, one of the, the author of mushrooms of, uh, Western North America. And, uh, did an amazing work and she worked a lot with with a bunch of different mycologists and uh, and three of them came for this foray which we had just outside of Banff actually in in the Kananaskis park area so we had um, the three former curators of the uh, mycological herbarium the national mycological herbarium in Ottawa and we had uh, we, oh, we had a bunch of people. We had a whole bunch of mycologists that came. And at the end of the day, we can't name the mushrooms. You know, we can't name all of the mushrooms. And, and some of them went back with, uh, with Dr. Scott Redhead back to Ottawa. 
and we're waiting for names on it. We had Dr. Jim Ginn's, probably the the best polypore guy in North America. And one of the mushrooms, and this is such a cool thing when we talk about biodiversity, um, because we had some of the best people in the world there, he had the opportunity to identify two mushrooms for us. Um, one is just the coolest little thing. It was called Oroporia pileata, and it was a tiny little polypore, about uh, a little bigger than a marshmallow, and uh, kind of a yellowy, yellowy-orange-looking thing. And the amazing thing about it was, is that when you smelt it, it had the most intense smell of orange blossom essence that you've ever smelt in your life. It's like somebody broke a vial open of this stuff, and it's just like the perfume just absolutely filled the air. And like there's there's no way that you can pass by that thing. And there's no way that that you can't take notice of it. So it's not some ubiquitous thing just growing out there on a stump and whatnot, just because it's so identifiable because of this intense smell. This was the first find of this mushroom in the Western Hemisphere. One and only, and so far one and only. And have we found it ever again? No, we haven't. A second one was this little cup fungus that grows on the branches of spruce trees. And we had the second find ever for this mushroom in North America or actually in the world. So these are things that we come across on a regular basis. And and so how we deal with it, you know, and the only way we knew that is because we had people who could, who could say, wow, this is amazing. And this is the kind of stuff that, that blows me away on a regular basis because it's something that, you know, there's lots of mushrooms I've seen once in my life and never seen again. And that's the cool part of it. So no matter how many experts you have, you know, you can't identify all the mushrooms. So part of what we started doing in within these forays was to look at, um, is to start to take a look at the stuff that was left on the tables. You know, once all the easy stuff was identified and, and then you start grouping things together and you have, you know, the, you know, these three kind of look like they're the same thing. And, and, and then we spend a little bit more time and we go through and try and describe them. And since 2013, we've been collecting DNA on a lot of this stuff and, and finding out actually what grows in Alberta. One of my interests has always been lexinums. Um, we, again, part of that cultural thing, that's another one that we, that the Latvians um, pick a lot of, and and most Eastern European ones. And again, there's the big question about, you know, how much of these can you eat? Are they poisonous? Are they not poisonous? And I think it's going back to that same question on the, on the, on the antibiotic nature or antimicrobial nature of, of the mushroom that's actually causing the, the poisonings. But, you know, that's just purely, purely speculation. That's my theory, actually, on my backboard here. You know, the great tragedy of science is the slaying of a beautiful hypothesis by an ugly fact. Um, and this is Thomas Huxley. Um, 
who wrote that. And so, you know, what, what I think is kind of irrelevant and, and well, let's get some information. And, uh, so we started looking at, um, I've been looking at Lexinums for a long time and realized the more, the more I look at them, the more I realize that, yeah, I don't have a clue what they are. And, and I don't know the ones that grow here at all. And we've got Lexinums that I've never seen before in any, in any book, in any, on any photograph. And one of the interesting things that came out of our 2013 foray, and this was one actually where we had Tom Bruns come. So Tom came to uh, to work with us on starting this DNA project and whatnot. So we kind of chose, I think, about we had about a hundred upper hundred uh, species that we could uh, hundred samples that we could test, and and uh, so we ended up testing a bunch of lexinums and all of a sudden came up with, you know, lexinum vulpinum, which is one that we didn't even know was on our list as a possibility, you know, that is, does this thing actually grow in Alberta? And so a lot of times we're guessing and a lot of times what we're trying to do is try to guess the same thing, you know, so what we're calling lexinum insigne is, is consistently the same. And so we're keeping keeping stuff and putting it into a herbarium and uh, the stuff that isn't getting through the DNA, which is costly and time-consuming. The other interesting one was um, Lyophilum shemiji, like, like one of the true shemijis. Again, so here we've got these Lyophilums and don't know what they are, but we're guessing they're Dicastes, you know, they're, you know, kind of, they kind of looks like the, the fried chicken mushroom or chicken of the woods or whatever they're calling it now. And it turns out that it's this probably one of the most expensive mushrooms in the world, you know, that, that comes out of Japan. So this is, this is a mycorrhizal mushroom that, that has to grow with, with, uh, and that's what they call the true shimiji. There's a bunch of different shimijis, which are end up being, um, you know, some of the, uh, the mushroom escapes me for a second. It'll come to me. But these ones here are really special and, and never even knew, never even had a clue that, that, uh, that, that this was on our radar, that this might be something that's growing. And so we know some of the areas that are growing and, and, and we're trying to kind of document actually how widespread the mushroom actually is. And the only way to do that is by people, people picking and taking care and taking photographs and, and bringing specimens in and, and, uh, and dealing with all of this stuff. It's absolutely mind blowing. And my question was, has this been organized into kind of a platform, whether it's using iNaturalist, you know, here in the United States, we have the fungal diversity survey. I'm not sure if they reach into Canada actually, actually, uh, but they're a nonprofit organization dedicated to basically supporting amateur mycophiles and mycologists in the pursuit of capturing more high quality observations, attaching it to DNA data, if at all possible, establishing as best we can that biogeography, and then put together a phylogenetic picture, and then ultimately hope to translate that into some kind of protection of rare or endangered species. Now, obviously, that's kind of a huge task, because first, you got to figure out what species are where, how rare are they truly. But from what you're laying out, you know, this is 
uh, a biodiversity hotspot. And that word gets used a lot. But I mean, Alberta sounds like a fungal diversity hotspot. And I can't imagine all the observations that are being made, you know, when there aren't world-class mycologists available to identify it or make sure it's a high quality observation. So in your mind, I mean, has it already been kind of organized into a biodiversity kind of formal program? Is there any plan to do that? Will it take shape organically? Because um, I imagine there might be academic institutions, other institutions that could get involved and kind of support that effort, right? Well, we certainly, we have a, li we have a little bit of support from the Department of Agriculture um, through the Mycological Herbarium in Ottawa. And, and they're, they're kind of getting our specimens or have been getting our specimens, I'm going to say. And they've been doing, doing some of our DNA work. The only problem is, is that, well, it's a big bureaucratic department. And uh, while we appreciate all of this stuff, you know, once the mushrooms and the specimens hit there, it kind of goes into a great big pit. And, uh, and it's difficult to, to get that stuff out. But let me tell you what we have done. So part of, part of what we're, what we did, and we're probably one of the first groups that in North America that sat down and went through all of the records that we could find of all the fungi that have been, have been found in Alberta. And we started the Alberta Fungal Database oh, way back in 2000. And, six, seven, eight, and we actually went through all of all of the records that we had and basically compiled those. And then from there, we kind of got a little bit more picky on what stuff that we're actually putting in there. So a lot of times what we're doing is, um, again, kind of like when the mycoflora, which turned into this uh, fundus project, came about, you know, their, their kind of saying was, if, if, if there isn't a sequence, it's just a rumor. And so in other words, because you don't know what you're getting, you know, I mean, you have a, you have a, a Russella. Well, Lord knows which Russella you've got, you know, until, until you actually have, have the fungus and somebody can actually literally take a sequence because Russellas are so cryptic, um, that it's so hard to, and they change in color, you know, they sit out in the sun and, you know, the watercolor palette of, of the mushroom cap gets faded by the sunlight and then it gets rained on and, and now it gets washed away and, and the colors that change have changed and a lot of Russell is bruised. So, so at times as time goes by, the color changes because of the bruising nature of, of the Russell and, and off it goes. So looking at it with your eyes, it's, it's really difficult. You know, I always, a lot of, times they say that well seeing isn't believing you know actually tasting is believing you know because because you know those things the taste whether it's hot or spicy or or the smells you know of of some of these things is is amazing one little hot little rustle that we had i think vetrinosa but it actually has this beautiful smell of honey and it's the only thing that uh that i've smelt that smells like honey in a mushroom and, and you go through the mushrooms and, and, you know, the smells and the, and all of those things are so critically important as you're picking, especially when you're dealing with fresh stuff. And that's a part of the problem with, 
with, you know, the photographs is that you just don't get these things. You don't get these components, you know, like David Aurora says, you know, because when you throw it against the wall, does it completely shatter? Or does it bounce back to you? You know, so, so now you know whether I, whether you've got a Rustler or a, or a Leucopaxillus. And, you know, and these things don't show up in, show up in photographs. And, you know, when you smell the mushroom and this one smells like the scales of a northern pike as opposed to smells fishy like, like a salmon or, or more like a, you know, or more like, you know, like a rustler, Zeramphalina, you know, that's got that crab shrimp aroma to it. You know, all of these things are really specific. So a lot of this, these are the notes that have to come down that, that you kind of make as, uh, as you've collected the mushroom. But, Anyways, I keep going, getting distracted. So we had this Alberta database, and then we started just because we wanted to have high-quality identification. So so at the Alberta forays, you know, we photograph everything, name it, or put a name on it. If we don't have a name now, we describe it and preserve it and and take some DNA and hopefully that this will come back at some point. At some point we'll, we'll see what these, what these mushrooms are. And, uh, there's just lots, lots and lots of, uh, lots and lots of work to be done. We use Mushroom Observer a bit. We had actually in 2014, we had Nathan Wilson come out and, and, uh, he's the, the guy who actually started all of that up with his kind of crew. And, uh, he came out to our, to our foray and, uh, kind of talked about using, using Mushroom Observer as a platform. In fact, for a long time on our, on the Alberta Mycological Society database, we had our photography page was Mushroom Observer and Mushroom Observer would just automatically provide all the obs- all Alberta observations that were happening in, uh, in Mushroom Observer, you know, automatically on, on our website. So that kind of made sense. So what we're doing now, actually, this year, we just, uh, we've decided, we decided to start our own herbarium. So we're going to, we made, uh, an arrangement with, uh, Northern, actually Portage College in Northern Alberta, and they're going to house the, uh, the herbarium. We're going to kind of supply the, uh, curate it and, and supply the, uh, the, the, the cabinets and, and all of the stuff to basically hold the, hold the, uh, hold the mushrooms because it's just an issue. It's an issue that, that nobody wants specimens and the specimens are, are so important because you never know when you might see these ever again. Like some might be a one of and, and that's it. And, uh, so is that a, is that a rare fungus? Yeah, obviously. But, uh, so those ones, those ones really turn my crank when I see, see stuff like that. And, you know, kudos to you for taking on really the mantle of that massive, daunting task. But that is a task I think gets a lot of people excited when they hear about it because, you know, the general arc of your story was Martin holding great Alberta mushroom hunts that were all about, hey, I want to learn the mushrooms. And quickly, there got to be this following. It grew. You learned your documentation. You learned how to catalog your finds. You added in things like DNA sequencing that I think is more and more available to the amateur now. And suddenly, it becomes a program. And I love this element where this year now, 
you're starting your own herbarium. I mean, these are kind of the biodiversity banks, if you want to call it these data banks that we could start a decentralized network of all over. And then that is kind of the raw material we need to get the fungal diversity picture. I mean, it's the picture of generations in terms of capturing enough observations at a many enough times of year uh, to really get a firm picture. But, you know, those kind of projects is really inspiring because I feel like if we started doing that everywhere, we'd actually be able to start putting this picture together. And it's very true, you know. I mean, even when you look, so they did uh, they did a study on species at risk in Canada for two thousand and twenty, I believe, and uh, and uh, so you know the guy that did the prairie prairie fungi was a member of our club, but um, I think in in Manitoba they had oh eight hundred some collections. In Saskatchewan, twenty seven hundred. In Alberta, we had I think thirty two thousand, and and this work is done by done by amateurs mostly. You know the these things, and all of a sudden now you can take a look at at really what's here and what what might be here in a hundred years and what's changing, and and the stuff that's changing just blows me away. You know things that uh, things that uh, well, for example. A couple of years ago, we found our first Sulis pungens. So that's a mushroom from your your neck of the woods. And Sulis pungens grows with, oh, what's the pine, the Monterey pine, and one of the other pines in the area and whatnot. So here in northern Alberta, actually, just outside of, outside of Jasper National Park, we're finding these Sulis pungens. Well, because they're, you know, finding a little white swillus is, is a rare thing to find anyway, so it kind of jumps out at you. And, uh, the swillus pungens turns out that it's the first ever recording of a mushroom, of this mushroom in Canada. And it's also the first ever recording of this mushroom growing with lodgepole pine as a host, as opposed to, as opposed to the Monterey pine and, and, and I can't remember which is the other ones. You probably and maybe maybe the bishop pine. Yeah, the bishop pine. That's that's one exactly. And so mostly mostly in California, a little bit in Oregon. It's been heard of in in Washington State, but in so we're kind of in on the edge of the boreal forest. And actually, we're I should say we we'll, we are in the boreal forest there. So all of a sudden, this mushroom shows up, and how does it how does it get there? Not really sure. And this we know for sure. This isn't speculation because we have the, we've got the DNA, the, you know, the, the sequences that this is what it is. You know, I did a talk for, for a town of Hinton at their library and I, you know, and basically said, Hey guys, you know, you should be, everybody should be buying property in Hinton, you know, because obviously it's getting a California like climate. And you know, so, so some this little li, little niche somewhere up in in uh, north central Alberta, just along the edge of the Rocky Mountains, has these fungi have found a home there. So very very cool. So biodiversity is so important. It tells us. Well, what does it tell us? Well, it tells us something. I don't know what it's telling us. Is it telling us about? climate change or is it telling us about the abilities of the organisms to to move and how does it move you know and it and it tells us something it's just i can't really say what it's telling us 
but it's something. And sifting through those threads of information to see, you know, the picture that's revealed, that feels like the only way to get the answer to some of those massive questions. Now you talk about biogeography. I love this idea of kind of host specificity and how mycorrhizal fungi and other fungi can really change either their hosts in the case of mycorrhizal fungi or their seemingly their lifestyles entirely uh, in some examples of exhibiting saprobic capacities or mycorrhizal capacities when you don't think it's that kind of mushroom. And it's really this huge data collection task that starts to inform some of those questions that otherwise are just eternally a mystery. But then once you engage in this process, these some of these things may be, may be knowable. Well, this is a massive project, a massive undertaking, endlessly fascinating, and uh, makes all your trips out into the woods worthwhile because you're finding something to contribute. But I guess when did you get activated or when did you get interested in medicinal compounds and the medicinal side of fungi? Uh, because I know that's something that I mean, a lot of people are interested in, but there are also a lot of people, and to me, it seems like some of the people that are most knowledgeable about fungi, when you get into NAMA, different organizations that have the most skepticism about medicinal compounds. So t talk about that journey for discovering medicinal mushrooms and kind of diving into this world, what you've, what you've learned. Well, it's, it's the mushrooms. The mushrooms brought me there. So one of my interests Actually, when I was a, a younger man, in, 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 we went through a big, big crunch in the 80s here in Alberta where, where everything went into the, went into the shitter. And, and so I had to kind of change careers and, and I had just collected some money off of a construction project and I opened a little health food store. So I was always kind of interested in, in that kind of stuff. And part of the reason for that was that, you know, what, not that I was sickly at all or, or whatnot, but I had some issues as a, as a young man. I had actually had a whiplash accident and, and what it had done is, is put my ribs out, which affected my heart rate. And, and all of a sudden I used to get shooting pains down my, down my left arm and, and my, I'd have chest pains and I would run into, oh, emergency. I don't know how many times. And, you know, they tell you, oh, there's nothing wrong with you. And, and you're kind of going, well, bullshit, you know, I feel what's going on here. There is something wrong with me. And I just realized that that I wasn't getting really well serviced by, even from a diagnostic place from uh, <clears throat> Western medicine. So I started looking at different things. And that kind of got me down, down some of these other rabbit holes, which I kind of found fascinating. But the mushrooms kind of brought me into studying um, traditional Chinese medicine. So I went to uh, Grant McEwen University and actually went through a, a program which included, you know, anatomy, physiology, pathophysiology. So all the kind of the, the, the health stuff, which kind of give, gives you a little, a really nice background. But, and in a lot of ways, it's kind of, and it's something that I would recommend that everybody do. I mean, you know, you buy a new car or you buy your computer and it comes with an owner's manual. And well, do we have an owner's manual? Well, actually we do, you know, and, and it's these things. It's knowing our anatomy and knowing our physiology and, and how stuff works. Um, but it was all about, it was all about learning more about the mushrooms. And because the Chinese have been using mushrooms for such a long, long time, 
that uh, I wanted to study that a little bit deeper. And uh, so that kind of got me going into it. And it also actually framed it a whole lot differently. You know, I, I think that we in in the Western world don't really have a very good view of of what Chinese medicinal mushrooms do because we're again we're coming from western western perspective so when you're dealing with chi and different things like that and the fact that mushrooms are cooling or or calming and and whatnot these are characteristics that slowly will modify your health so for example you know when you look at at something like ling chi or rishi ganoderma within chinese medicine i mean basically what they did is is they observed the world and said, well, we're part of this world and, and, uh, and how does this compound work? And so they look at the polypore and the polypore end up, ends up making that stump or, or basically digesting that hard stump and making it soft. And so one of the, one of the key things in Chinese medicine is this concept of stagnation where your energies stagnate and, and when, when this gets to a really super chronic level, that's what cancers are. So it's this uh, this extenuated extenuated uh, kind of inhibition of the flow of qi. And so they looked at them at the mushroom and said, "Well, you know, if, if this works for the tree and turns the tree soft, this should work for 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 us as well." And it was a good premise. I don't think that that's really what it does. But what we find out that there's a whole bunch of compounds in these mushrooms that potentially do work on on tumors and actually boosting our immune system and things like that. So so it's very 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 interesting in that way. So it's kind of a different perspective of of what the what the chemicals are and the observations they make are just fascinating. For example, in oyster mushrooms, for one, in Western thought and, and whether it's Western herbal thought or whatnot, you know, well, we want to take this if we've got heart issues because, because it's got lots of statins in it, you know, because we've got some reports that, that there's lots of statins in oyster mushrooms. And, uh, and one of the interesting things was, is that in Chinese medicine, oyster mushrooms were never ever used in heart pathologies. They were used for tending, tendon easing powders and, and cooling things and, and some for high fevers. At, at some point, it'll help. Anything that'll cool you is a good thing because you're too hot. So it's just kind of a, a common sense type of thing. And so, and I had been thinking about this and I've got a chemist friend of mine and we started collecting some, some oyster mushrooms again, just to see how much statins there actually were in the in the mushrooms themselves and and looking at different mushrooms that are growing on the same substrate so there's one big poplar log and and well let's pick this oyster mushroom and let's pick this panis strictus and let's pick this other one that's growing on there let's take a look at you know if if the substrate really affects what's going on with with the mushroom which kind of curious minds want to know you know and uh, so we kind of went through that and what we found was that though there was no statins whatsoever in them and um, and this friend of mine, well, his day job was he was working in a lab testing statins in red yeast rice, an actual source of of statins. Um, 
And so he knew his stuff, you know, this was, these are compounds that he was working with and we couldn't find any. So what we decided to do is, well, we bought some medicinal oyster mushroom powders and we got some dried ones and some fresh ones and we did a whole bunch of, and we basically didn't find any, any statins in any of this stuff. And which kind of, well, then the question of statins actually goes up. Because, you know, statins, it's very, very questionable if they actually do anything. And, and it looks like the more research that's being done is that the statins don't typically really affect heart pathologies in any particular way. And then Merck actually came out and when their patent expired, they actually said, well, yeah, it actually doesn't look like it does a whole heck of a lot. But uh, in essence, you know, it's still, you know, the go-to product. Going back to the Chinese mushroom, or the Chinese thing, it just makes you question, well, is it the statin? If there was a statin, does the statin actually do anything? Hmm, might not be. The mushroom might not do anything either, but the mushroom does seem to work for, like I said, uh, tendon easing powders and, and stuff like that. So it's one of the mushrooms that I use when I make some of my creams that I use for joints is some oyster mushroom and uh, and whatnot. It's super interesting. I've always been fascinated by this idea of the law of correspondence. It's kind of almost a more metaphysical notion where observations about usually observable properties or attributes of a substance, an herb, a mushroom, can translate to the effects it has in the human body. And I've always been fascinated by that because you know, the classic example is lion's mane is good for your brain because it looks like a brain. And the fact that that can kind of bear out when you actually do look at the compounds and drill down. So it sounds like in the case of Chinese medicine, now this is backed up on thousands of years of experiential use as well, but some of those underpinnings where they would understand the mushroom in kind of a different way than the reductionistic, what are the constituent parts? They would kind of understand the essence of the organism and how that would translate to the human body. That's always been a fascinating concept. And I want to believe that that is, can be accurate, more accurate than we might give it credit for. Well, yeah, I struggle with that a little bit, but you know, because I might not be smart enough to wrap my head around that. But having said that, what I, what I really, you know, whatever motivates you to try something is one thing, but you observe what happens, you know? So, Again, in Chinese medicine, you know, one of the things that they say is that the heart houses the mind, and that's where your mind dwells within within the heart. And of course, we all know that that's well, that's a bunch of bullshit. You know, the the you know the the mind is in in the brain and the head, and off it goes. And it was interesting in the nineties they were doing some studies, and they what they found that they found that people suffer suffering from depression and who were on antidepressants had a much higher prevalence of of cardiovascular disease, especially heart attacks. So they kind of made the connection there and thought, okay, well, let's look at this in a little bit more detail. Let's see if some of these antidepressants are, are actually contraindicated for anybody who's got heart pathologies and whatnot. And what they found that the drugs absolutely had no had no relation to causing the heart attack. 
But what they basically observed is that people who suffer from depression and from, from diseases of the mind end up having a higher prevalence of heart attacks and, and heart disease. So here again, Chinese medicine, like even though we know the, it's the brain that houses the mind, well, in essence, they were right. Their observation was correct. And uh, so again, one of the things that, that I really like about Chinese medicine is that whole concept of observation. Love Mushroom Observer for that as well. Just watching the observations, and, and no one can argue with them. I mean, you can argue about what actually you've observed, but, you know, that mushroom did grow here, and, and it's a record, you know. Is it as good as a, a record with a herbarium specimen and a sequence? Well, no, but... But it's fine, you know, it's, it's one of the things that contributes to our overall knowledge. And, uh, I think those things are really critical. And in Chinese medicine, there's so many things that just end up working out that, gosh, they were right, you know, I mean, the kidneys control the blood. Well, absurd. The kidneys don't control the blood at all. Or actually, they said the kidneys build the blood. And it was at, Oh, turn of the last century where they discovered that there's this hormone called uh, erythropoietin, which actually stimulates the bone marrow to make the blood cells. And it was finally in the 70s that they discovered that, well, actually, this hormone's created in the kidney that creates the hormone that stimulates the bone to produce blood and other macrophages and different things like that, which again goes back to, my God, these people have been right for, for thousands of years because they've observed closely and, and they've made notes. So having observations, you know, in medicinal mushrooms and the use of medicinal mushrooms, I think is really, really important. And so this is something that, that uh, going forward, I'm kind of interested in working on a little bit is is to put some stuff together in, in kind of more of a medicinal mushroom format and basically where we can share some of the observations. And once you have enough observations, then you can actually contemplate some theories. I mean, you shouldn't even go to a theory before, before you've got a, got a mug full of uh, observations. And, and at some point, maybe do start doing some small um, clinical trials that are kind of self-funded or crowdfunded clinical trials, because at the end of the day, that's really what's needed in in this whole process, I think, of understanding. And uh, so I think lots of people are doing lots of stuff with different compounds, and we just need to share those share those observations and uh, and collect them. And you've just pierced to the heart of really both these huge issues we talked about, the united in the fact that, you know, the pursuit of scientific discovery is all centered on observation. And I love that. And actually, I think I may start calling people's anecdotal experience as observational experience, you know, because we hear a lot about people that have had really life-changing events of regimens they've adopted of medicinal mushrooms and the effect that has. And I used to call that kind of their anecdotal information, but really it's observational. I love that idea. These are observations they've made. And in the case of you know, someone's story of how they help them, or in the case of maybe of Chinese medicine, where the observation itself gives you the conclusion, even if you don't understand the exact mechanism that gets you there, you've seen enough, you know, the input and the output to understand that relationship. Yeah, you've just, 
elucidated an incredibly important principle that probably runs through every episode of The Mushroom Hour is the importance of observation. And I have to ask the question then, as someone who's looked at these issues, you know, far more than myself and many people, is there a preferred delivery method? I mean, you kind of threw me for a loop when you said most of your medicinal mushrooms are applied topically. Uh, maybe talk about that reasoning and then where you fall in terms of you know, optimal delivery of medicinal mushrooms? Is it a powderized fruit body? Is it an extract, mycelium, a mixture? What are kind of all your thoughts around those things? Well, I'm observing is, 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 is the stage I'm at. I have a, a friend of mine and, and uh, who was kind of into, and I, I've been interested in medicinal mushrooms for a long, long time. And he started dealing with these creams and uh, at one I was at one Alberta Mycological Society retreat we get together once in the winter and I had just finished well actually I hadn't finished my pneumonia bout but I had really a fairly intense case of pneumonia and uh, but I was feeling a little bit better I went to the retreat and I said I'll be there for maybe the morning session and then I'll take off and uh so anyways, he gives me some creams. Um, he says, why don't you put this on? So I did. And uh, it was amazing. It was amazing. It worked within, oh, five to ten minutes. I mean, immediately I've got, I can breathe. I'm not coughing. Went through all the meetings, though, coughing once. And uh, sent me some home with it. I could finally sleep because... You know, I would cough myself awake, you know, every hour or so. And uh, all of a sudden, well, I had made an observation that that some of this stuff works really, really well. And it's amazing how well it works. I was listening to one of your podcasts uh, with Michael Bube, um, who talked about uh, some mushroom creams that he sent for a friend of his, or that a friend sent to a friend of his, and... Uh, well, that kind of came through this network that I'm, that I'm a part of. I'm actually Michael Bude's friend, and my friend is the guy that, that produced the creams. So we're kind of working with, we're working with, um, with, with the different creams and trying diff all kinds of different things. One of the things that's very interesting in, in that case, you know, in that case, the creams were, the creams were topically applied. It was, uh, it was a, uh, Tremades, you know, turkey tail cream, and it worked really, really well. The interesting thing about that is, is that according to conventional thought, the medicinal ingredient that works is PSK, polysaccharide K. That's, that's the one that actually does it. Well, in this case, it's not what does it because polysaccharide K, well, a polysaccharide, is a huge molecule, you know, it's a beta glucan with a whole bunch of big side chains on it. And you're never, ever going to, going to absorb that up through the skin. So there's something else. There's something else in the turkey tail, some way smaller molecules that are working, or it might not be way smaller molecules. It might be that your skin microbiome might be breaking some of these side branches apart and liberating some of the stuff. But the active ingredient isn't the PSK. It's something else. And I think we're finding that with a whole bunch of stuff. So I find that 
I think that the delivery mechanism depends on what your what your condition is. And, you know, one of the things, again, going back to the lobster mushroom, that can disrupt the gut biome. We know, I think we're pretty sure that we know that that the thing that makes lexinums poisonous is a disruption to the gut biome. So, or some of the, some of the red lexinums that people overeat with, you know, that, that has disrupted the gut biome. And what do mushrooms do better than anything? Gosh, they disrupt the, they disrupt the microbiome. They've been doing it for years and years, you know, and, and well, millennia, millennia isn't even the right epochs. You know, they've, <laughs> they've grown together with knowing how to deal with bacteria and, not just how to deal with bacteria, they're competing with bacteria, they're also cooperating with bacteria, and uh, this to me is just this this actual microbiome of what's going on where the where the fungi live is fascinating. And so one of the things that they do do, and we know that, and, and the research is coming out, that they are interrupting what they call the quorum sensing, and i um, I don't know if you're familiar with that. Yeah, quorum sensing, yeah. Just quickly for, for whoever Mostly. isn't. Uh, quorum sensing is basically the way bacteria communicate. So what happens is that I kind of, well, it's a bad analogy and people have given me hell for it, but I'm going to use it anyways. Um, bacteria, I kind of vicious them like teenagers, you know. You got one lonely teenager and where does he do? He sequesters himself downstairs in the basement room and you, and he doesn't come out, you know, because that's where he's comfortable with. And, and, and you get a few of them together. Well, now they're a little bit more rambunctious. They're, they're basically able to move around. And once you get quorum, when you get enough of them, then all of a sudden now, now away we go. Now we're no longer shy. Now we're no longer, now we're, we're basically heading out into the street and to the point of becoming virulent in, in some cases. And bacteria works just like that. They, they, so they communicate chemically. They sense one another. If there's enough of them, they'll start to create some biofilms. The biofilms prevent different compounds from affecting them and macrophages and different stuff like that. And when you have enough of a, enough of a quorum of biofilm, all of a sudden now everything can become virulent and, and off it goes. So, you know, probably both of us have, all of us have, have cholera in us, cholera bacteria, which is just laying and being controlled by our immune system. So what fungi do is they muck around with this quorum sensing. So they disrupt some of the signaling and whatnot. They make things virulent before it's ready to be virulent and where the, uh, where, where the microbiome can ease or that bacteria can easily be killed. So what happens and that's what's happening. And it's been happening for, for epochs, this, this, this combination of stuff. So part of it makes me nervous on, on mushrooms sometimes to eat a tremendous amount of them. And we always hear that, you know, overeating any of them is just a really, really bad idea. And, uh, places where we have a perfectly good edible mushroom like, uh, Trichloma flavovirens man on horseback eaten in small quantities, all of a sudden now becomes a problem when you eat it in huge quantities. Same with lexinums. Same with, 
with lobster mushrooms. Same with all of these things are, are the same thing. So I'm just cautious on what I want to put through into my gut. And I do that on a regular, well, when I say that, like the Chinese, I do like having my medicine as food. So yeah, I'm including Herisium, I'm including auricularia, you know, auricularia. I, mean, I want the melanins. I want the melanins from auricularia for a bunch of different reasons. Very intense, intense uh, antioxidant. And I've got my little stockpile of antioxidants once Putin goes or, or of melanins. And, and, and it's melanin season out there, you know, it's morel season full of melanins. And, uh, I'll be collecting those and I'm going to have a big stash, you know, if, uh, if Putin goes completely off the deep end, I'm going to be eating lots of morels, I'll tell you. You know, right there, you've laid out this interesting idea where your medicinal stockpile ends up being these like biological augments for the complex ecology that is your system. You're, not, you're thinking of it as, oh, this mushroom contains this compound that my body can use and this mushroom. And you become much more informed and and much more informed and much more adept at kind of putting things together for what your body needs in that moment. And that really strikes me too about this idea of bacteria disruption and disruption of our microbiome. You know, talk about endless amounts of research with the variables people have and their relative amounts of bacteria in their gut and how that might be affected by different mushrooms. There may be mushrooms that affect in an example, maybe only cholera. It's like, oh, we want that mushroom. There may be a mushroom that affects a beneficial bacteria and we want to stay away from that one. And like I said, the differing levels of bacteria in an individual's gut, it may be, oh, well, this mushroom, we may be able to learn through research, well, this mushroom won't be good for you because that's going to disrupt the quorum of your gut that's dominated by said bacteria. Because I've heard of people that have problems, obviously with chicken of the woods, and there's many common ones, but there's also people that, can't handle porcini or morels. And uh, apart from just feeling incredibly sorry for these people, you know, it may be that there is some kind of quorum disruption going on and they just have a unique gut microbiome. So, I mean, talk about adding, talk about adding layers of complexity uh, into this conversation. Yeah. And the microbiome is something that we know so little of let alone our own microbiome. I mean, it's, you know, the research really has, has started picking up in the last, you know, four or five years and been phenomenal how much we've learned. But let's dip into the, into the fungal bi microbiome. You know, I mean, that, I mean, was, was completely off the radar. I mean, it's always been a little bit on the radar for the real, the real geeky types. I love the morel story. You've probably seen, you know, where the, where the morels, the morels were kind of basically farming the bacteria or that was a, that was the suggestion where, but for sure the bacteria, um, the morels were, were taking the bacteria and shuttling it and feeding it metabolites and shuttling it through to the scrolotia where it's going to need food or it's going to need whatever resource that, that, um, that bacteria is growing. So for sure the mushrooms have a microbiome. They have a microbiome inside the hyphae they also have a microbiome outside the hyphae and, and stuff that lives along that uh, along the hyphal walls and again you know there's the cooperation you know for the fungi some of this stuff is producing different different compounds that it needs at a much lower cost for it than than it has to spend to create the same type of thing and that's the same thing in our gut 
You know, I mean, a lot of our vitamins and B vitamins and stuff like that are produced in our microbiome and our guts and whatnot. And, and so I think we, we deal with those with a little bit of peril. And again, it all goes back to a simple thing of, of observation. You know, we know that, you know, some people can't eat a tomato or can't eat a pepper. And, uh, we have to be a little bit sensitive to what those things are. And, uh, it's not that there's a superfood and everybody should eat it. I think we know by now that that really doesn't work. You know, there's a superfood for you and there's a superfood for me and, and that superfood might change in a year or two. But, you know, interestingly enough, I mean, one of the things that, uh, as well, you know, the, like the foamies, fomentarius, the, uh, tender comp, again, there's this little bit of antibacterial cube that the natives, or the ancient peoples used to throw into stew pots and different things to prevent everything from basically from going bad. So when you had stuff on like in, in skin pots, you know, where the temperatures would rise and fall and stuff like that. So a lot of this stuff has been used from an observational perspective. You know, what those compounds are, who knows, but they end up working. Well, and for many of us, the observational understandings may be the most potent and the uh the most approachable uh for <laughs> until the science really really progresses i guess is there i was just gonna say and and you know and 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 the one the one thing it would be nice to get the observations out and lo know a little bit more about the mushrooms and again that's partly going to be my a bit of my project going forward is to being able to identify some of the mushrooms being able to process some of these things that people can actually use these you know i mean the worst thing would be is is that if this if all of these compounds are taken over by big pharma and the only way we have access to them is through the gatekeepers of uh, of western medicine to me it's a really not that western medicine isn't isn't a, a good thing in a lot of ways it is but um but a lot of times i think there's so many of us that have such poor access to it um, I mean, now, I mean, you look even today, what, 30% of all doctors are, are senior citizens, you know, and, and most, and there's so many people that, that can't even find a doctor anymore. And, uh, so our access, our access through these gates to be able to get any of these compounds, you know, is challenged. And, uh, so I think the information, the information of what the mushrooms do and what the observations are and, and where they, where they can be found. And each one is special, you know, and I mean, picking each one, you know, you pick the one you need. You don't pick the big buckets full. And, and, and you, you know, every, every fruiting body is to a certain degree sacred, you know, and it should be used. It's, well, actually, I shouldn't say sacred. Well, I'll say sacred, but, but I will say precious. And so we can't be very, we can't be cavalier about, uh, about how we forage i think we have to forage with a lot of uh <clears throat> with a lot of responsibility and you know the most knowledgeable mycologists i speak with who understand everything about the mycelium is the living part and the fruit body doesn't necessarily damage that's still the message i hear is don't take everything there's just a certain level of restraint it, it's kind of the obvious conclusion you come to. So I appreciate you throwing that out there. And then you also launched the grenade of, you know, commodified medicine. Are we going to be worried about some of these medicinal compounds being, 
privatized or gate kept or you know we're already worried about that in the world of psychedelics to think that that might rear its head and maybe more likely to rear its head in the underexplored realm of medicinal mushroom compounds that's really concerning so yeah putting out kind of the people's herbalist type of information that everyone has access to it kind of takes on a new level of importance when you add that perspective to it well and and, and it's not just it's not just that i mean we only have access to compounds to pharmaceutical products and compounds where somebody can make a lot of money and so when you can't make a lot of money the product isn't going to be available to us and so whether whether the product might be co-opted i don't i'm not as afraid of that as much as um well as it uh, as as it just remaining unknown and because there might be there might be things that'll work and things that'll work for you and for your family that that you should be able to actually pursue on your own and we know that you know if you can't if i can't patent it and and you know so i can run the big huge clinical trial then it's never going to get to market which means that we don't have access to it so part of part of it is the is creating an access through through a community knowledge which is important and, and some of this stuff will never become pharmaceuticals in my mind it's a rich perspective to add that i think is going to resonate with a lot of listeners you know is there a medicinal mushroom medicinal fungus on your radar that you think i'm sure there's many but that hasn't been picked up into kind of the modern scene that's circulating right now we have the big ones the turkey tail the lion's mane the cordyceps the chaga you know all the ones we hear about i would say even oyster shiitake seem novel to some people like oh those are medicinal and you know we know about polysaccharides you know every mushroom is quote unquote medicinal to some extent but are there any kind of powerhouses that you've either had personal observational experience with or have read anything about that have been on your radar as something that you think kind of deserve more attention? Oh gosh, it's huge. You know, how many mushrooms are out there? It's, uh, and, and how do we, how do we learn how to use them? You know, I'm, you know, there's this concept called, uh, hormesis, you know, or hormetic, which basically says that it talks about dosage. And sometimes, sometimes we need very, very tiny doses of things to kind of push our body into one direction or, or another. It's kind of like that quantum story, you know, of how quantum mechanics works, where just a little bit of a nudge is all it takes for this thing to kind of, for this chemical reaction to tip over and and start to cascade or, or even like an action potential in a nerve or something like that for a signal to be self sent. So a lot of times I think there's there's little sometimes these compounds that we need are are very few and very, very small to have a really positive positive effect. I know that that doesn't answer your question there. But what it does but what it does is that there's so many different fungi out there you know we've looked at all kinds of different polypores and and what i try and do in general myself is just try and include a diversity of fungi i don't eat a lot of fungi but i eat a diversity and i try and keep this going through because again i'm thinking of my ancient ancestors when they were hunter gatherers you know you when you had morel fruitings, I mean, you may have dried some and you may have kept some for the fall. Actually, I don't think a lot of people, a lot of the ancients 
ate a lot of mushrooms and stuff. They collected it for, because there's not enough calories in them. You know, for you to stand around and go pick mushrooms all day, the, the calorie expense is huge to, to actually get very few calories back. But if you're collecting medicine, it's a whole different matter. So I think that, that in looking at mushrooms in general, a lot of them are medicinal in some ways, in these small ways that we should include them into our diets. If there's any one mushroom that I think is really exciting, I think it's, it's an old Chinese mushroom that the snow fungus, tremella. Yeah. Because they're finding that tremella works very much like, uh, like lion's mane with the same nerve growth factors. It's got a real affinity to, to epithelial cells, you know, so again, for skin, where else do you have epithelia? Well, basically all through your gut, through your lung and all of that. And, and so I think that's really good. Also, there actually there's some interesting research finding out that it's not just the nerve growth hormones aren't just affecting nerve growth in the brain, but they're also affecting uh, insulin, insulin producing cells in the pancreas. So part of the thing. So lots of lots of different mushrooms. And mushrooms are just so cool. I mean, it just blows me away. You know, you see things happen across the species. And, you know, so for example, you know, you have amatoxins. Amatoxins show up, you know, in some amanitas. Some, um, they don't show up in saprophytic amanitas. They're showing up, but they also show up, at, but they show up in saprophytic gallerinas. So amanitas are mycorrhizal gallerinas or Saprophytics. So we're seeing these different compounds showing up in all kinds of, you know, from conocybes, the different things, and, and some lepiotas, again, which is another saprophyte, I believe. So completely unrelated species, all of this, these compounds show up. And it's very, very cool, you know. So, for example, in in Amanita muscaria, and anyone that might have, like, the ibotenic acid or what, some of the compounds like that. Well, you won't find any, any amatoxins in any of those. And it's interesting how they change. And, and the really kind of cool thing, I think, is in inosibes. So in inosibes, inosibes have, uh, have muscarin, but some of the, some of the inosibes have basically flipped out. I think it's the glutamic acid for tryptophan. And instead of making muscarin, which causes some certain poisonings, now they're making psilocybin. But they're mutually exclusive. So, you know, when you have a psilocybin-bearing mushroom, and psilocybin, of course, goes across, you know, from saprophytic, from saprophytic to mycorrhizal to all kinds of different fungi from, from gymnopolis to well, psilocybes, obviously, and uh, inocybe, and pluteus, and, and all of these different, completely different compounds, completely different unrelated mushrooms. All of this chemistry has shown up, and in a lot of ways, they're kind of mutually exclusive from each other, you know, and, and you see that across a number of different things. I find that really, really fascinating. I don't know what stirred me to, to go down that rabbit hole, but well, it is really fascinating. And 
you know, this all kind of all comes together, this idea of dosage and really, I mean, some of what you're talking about is not the redefinition of what a medicinal compound is, but rethinking how we identify what is considered medicinal, what mushrooms are considered worthy of our attention and their ability to astound us by creating novel compounds or having compounds show up that we wouldn't expect across species uh, within a genus. So yeah, there's a lot to unpack in there. And I think our compass ends up being more and more observation, collecting more specimens, observing more, uh, both in terms of the microscopic, you know, reducing down the component parts, but also seeing the effect. Yeah, just massive, massive topics. Well, Martin, I'm sure like me, everybody listening wants to know where to hear more from you, where to learn more from you. Where's the best place for people uh, maybe to follow you uh, and see, review any of your work? Well, that that is going to be coming up. It's going to be coming up on a I'm putting together a, a website or a, called Martin on Mushrooms. As I was saying earlier, you know, as I kind of retire out of my my home inspection gig, I'm going to be kind of going there. We're going to be doing some medicinal stuff. We're going to be doing some uh, some mushroom courses as well. I'm going to focus a little bit on some foraging and and some of the concerns with the foraging. Um, I think foraging, especially commercial foraging, needs uh, at minimum to have, you know, chains of custody. So, you know, where the mushroom came from, who picked it, who's handled it. And and, and try and get a little bit communities involved that have a vested interest in their, in their eco space, you know, in their forests, in their stuff, and have people who are responsible going and and do a lot of the, the collections anyways so that's going to be there i'm doing some stuff with my fungi which is kind of exciting and my fungi again is uh we talked about it earlier doing some work with uh with psilocybin and uh but you know that's just one thing they've got the capacity to do uh to do huge sterilization so they're going into grow kits and from that you know, places where grow kits can work are being incorporated, I think, is into gardens and stuff like that to basically sink the mycelium back into the garden, which basically means that you're doing some micro-remediation right in your garden of all of the other things. And also creating some micro, some micro-remediation projects because, because the sterilizers that, that my fungi have, have the capacity to actually put together some big uh bigger lots or bigger blocks of mycelium and uh, and use those in 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 some micro remediation in areas where you don't really expect where you'd have that so so in other words not just cleaning up oil spills but you know cleaning up heavy metals and cleaning up cleaning up excess nutrient that's coming off of fields and and you know you need the micro remediation from the fungi to bring the bacteria back into the soils. And, uh, so if you want to clean up stuff that's been devastated by, uh, by the roundup and other different things, um, you know, you just need, you need the microbiome and, and that microbiome has to come back with all of the stuff, you know, with the arthropods and with the, with the bacteria and with the, with the mushrooms. And actually I'm doing a little bit of a project as well, which I'll be talking about. 
at some point when I get the results, we're doing a kind of a heavy metal cleanse, my wife and I. So she used to be in the dental industry and had high levels of, of especially mercury, but some other things. And, uh, and we might have been affecting her health. So we're, uh, we're doing some, some using some mushroom chelation, which is kind of really, really cool. And there's some really neat things happening, happening with that. And again, in the, in the medicinal mushroom world, chanterelles, you had mentioned, I think at some point that chanterelles is one of your favorite. Really great for, I would speculate that this is a theory that it would be really great for people who have hematomacrosis, really high iron levels, because chanterelles have an ability to, to basically take up a lot of, a lot of iron. And so this, what better therapy to have is, is eat your chanterelles. That is one therapeutic regimen I would probably actually stick with. Well, classic mycophile, you're interested in all the most fascinating parts of mushrooms, the biodiversity, the genetics, massive work, medicinal mushrooms, micro-remediation, integrating mushrooms into your garden. I mean, you're just covering it all. So we're going to find all the links to those websites so people can connect with that work. And as someone who's kind of covering all these massive areas of exploring mycology, uh, is there any plan for maybe, you know, a book in the future? That's kind of cliche. Not everyone has to write a book. But is there any other big project you're looking forward to on your plate that we should know about? Boy, that's a good question. Yeah, there there are a couple of things. I'd like to do a I'd like to do a, a book on polypores of the of the boreal forest, um, just because we need one. But I don't know if I'll get around to that one. That's a big project. A kind of project that I'd really like to do is to do a biodiversity survey of Wilmore Wilderness Park. It's a really neat park. It's a huge park north of Jasper. And I have uh, Jasper National Park in Alberta, right through the Rockies. And, uh, and there's no road access to it. So it'd be kind of a horseback kind of uh, foraying. And what I'm, what I'd like to do is, is actually to do a biodiversity survey of the area because there's really, really cool fungi there, lots of which are undocumented and lots of which times I'm picking up some of these things and I can't even put it into, into a, a genus, you know, and that's, there's just lots of really interesting looking fungi that, uh, a lot of which I see for the first time, you know, I see things that I'm thinking, this is, this is a, a Calibia. And it actually has brown spores. So what in the world is it? You know, and I reach out to, I reach out to, to the mushroom world around me and, and no one can, no one can put a, uh, you know, can't even suggest a genera for me to put it in. And so there's some really neat stuff. And I think it's a, it's a real opportunity for people if they want to get into, to get into some really pristine habitat and participate in some biodiversity and maybe we'll include a, some uh, mushroom ID and especially mushroom ID on and and or how to collect for science and stuff like that and and we'll have all of that stuff and then of course we'll cook it up at the end of the day the stuff that the stuff that isn't going to the herbaria that's the beauty of it I remember many years ago when uh, I was interviewed by CBC our, our national broadcaster and uh and they said, why mushrooms? And I said, well, you know, I mean, the lovely thing about mushrooms is that, you know, you get to find all these unique things. 
and every once in a while, and some every once in a while, some real gourmet mushroom, and you get to come home and you get to have have a meal of it at the end. And I said, and that's the problem with bird field guides, you know, none none of the bird field guides have any of the recipes in them. And and I'll tell you, I had more response from that than from anybody else. Every birder in Alberta was 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 yeah was out to get me, but. Uh, it's like being uh, being a wine connoisseur, you know. I mean, there's there's a science of 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 making a bottle of wine and 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 coming up with something that's amazing. But every once in a while, you want to crack that bottle, and 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 that's the same kind of thing with fungi, I find. Anyway, so that's a project that's that's going to happen along with you know the regular stuff that we're with the with the biodiversity stuff for the mycological society. I'm sure that any kind of biodiversity search or foray would be amazing to go on with you because you would get the proper science. And I love that idea of having workshops where people can make better observations and then blending that with the art of, you know, cookery and preservation and really enjoying the fungi that we can eat. So I love that idea. Looking forward to that. And then the final three questions I ask all my guests, I'll just throw this one out there, even though you've already given us some amazing mushrooms and fungi to research, I'm going to go back and listen and I have to search engine all these amazing genera and species you've thrown out there. But what is a mushroom or fungus that you love and why? And this can be one that's been kind of a touchstone through your mycological journey, or maybe it's just one you saw when you were out on your last hike, but a mushroom you love and why? Well, I really like the mushroom that's that's in front of me. And and I'll tell you more so what I get really excited about is when I go out mushroom picking and I don't see anything. And I walk through the woods and I know that they're there. They're there and it's teeming with fungal life and and this fungal life is intertwined. I mean it's phenomenal, you know, when you consider, you know, we walk on on what we call terra firma, you know, the, the solid ground. But that solid ground actually is, well, some of it's solid, you know, but some of it is gaseous. You know, we've got, we've got gases down there. We've got moisture and water down there. It's kind of all forms of everything happening at once right now in the ground. And, and it's just jammed full of life. And even though I don't see it, to me, that's just the coolest thing. And it gives me a little bit of, it gives me some pause to think about, uh, what's really happening out there. And then really that's kind of, that kind of is one of the things that really turns my crank. You know, fungi come and go. And, and like I said, I find stuff once and I never see it again. And everyone's special. And, uh, I guess maybe from my, old Christian upbringing, you know, I, I still remember, I still remember Holy Communion and stuff like that. And a lot of times that's kind of what it seems like. You come out, you come out into the forest and here's nature, just mother earth, just lifting up and, and, and giving you this mushroom and say here, you know, and basically saying here, this is my body and it's for you. And, and you take each one of those and, and you, treat it with a little bit of reverence and uh and like anything else you know the gift that comes 
how can you best honor that is by using that gift properly. And, and so a lot of times it's just, it's seeing that one or the two, that's something special. And, uh, and those are the, those are those kind of moments that I kind of relish. Well, your father's words ring true. I mean, you found something to replace it with. And like you said, you now really know him by his works. I mean, mushrooms have, have, offered that the the mushroom that's in front of you offers you that that viewpoint and that bleeds perfectly into the next question which is what has this deep relationship with fungi given to you and you've kind of given us already some really vivid depictions of that but if there's anything else to summarize what your relationship with these organisms has given to you or taught you well you know and part of it is 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 just because we can't see it a lot of the stuff that's unseen that uh, that has such profound profound influence on my life and uh, and the stuff that that's seen I mean the mushrooms but especially the community you know the community of people that I've that I've met all over the world and uh, and from all over the world that are amazing people you know I listen to your to many of your podcasts and and you know, my good friend Robert Rogers, you know, I mean, he's an amazing herbalist and, uh, basically he taught me plants and, and I introduced him into mushrooms, you know, and, and we've known each other for years and years. So stuff like that, Michael Buke, you know, an amazing guy, amazing guy that I met at NAMA because I was looking for people who were going to come to my neck of the woods to teach me mushrooms and, Michael immediately amazing human being takes me under his wing and and I get introduced to oh Gary Linkoff and 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 Tom Volk and and for the first time I met a met a very very young Noah Siegel and uh, and all of these people that that you that all of a sudden you develop a community with Kathy Cripps um and it's phenomenal and and I will say for the organizations for the organizations that are out there, such as, in my case, the Alberta Mycological Society, amazing people. But no matter where you are, you know, you've got amazing people in the mushroom community, in your community, and reach out to them. Reach out to NAMA if you really, really want to learn. Go to a NAMA foray and, and hang around the smartest guy in the room. That's how you learn. And you make the connections and you can send them a question. You can give them a phone call. And uh, once you develop that relationship and those things have been really, really important. I think so many people would have that same experience that one of the most powerful things they've received is these kind of mycelial threads that have reached out and created their community or their social circle or support circle. Uh, inevitably, you find your mushroom people. So mushrooms are helping us find our community. It's one of the most powerful things they can do. I, I love that. And then another broad question, you know, as our society, and you could say just Western society that's kind of catching up to this appreciation of mushrooms and fungi or human society in general, uh, as we continue to develop this relationship and realize how powerful an ally mushrooms and fungi are going to be moving forward. How do you hope that most positively changes our society? Uh, and again, you can go any direction you want with that. I know it's a huge question. 
I think I think we as a species, well, we've got issues, and and you know, you look at the beaver. You know, the beaver comes along and he and he builds a dam and he slows down slows down the water and creates some habitat for for fish and for for birds and for for all kinds of stuff. It slows the water so the nutrient comes out of it and eventually makes this beautiful meadow where the forest can regenerate itself. You know, and, and you hang around in that habitat and watch watch what its genetic footprint. You know, the genetic footprint of the beaver is or the genetic footprint of a pine tree, you know, of of what it does, how it dusts everything with pollen and, and needles and, and, and stuff like that and the, the influence that it has. And, and then you, and then you walk into, then you walk into, to, uh, human habitat, you know, and, and here we are in, in our downtown urban areas, you know, you know, it's paved and if a blade of grass happens to, to crack through a sidewalk or a dandelion, God forbid a dandelion, you know, we, we end up eradicating it. It's, and it's just, I guess the response to this, you know, I've been dealing with lots of fungal questions through my time, well, dealing with any of these questions. And the biggest question I find more often is, how can I get rid of it? And I've had guys, uh, I remember I had a one call from a county of Red Deer, central Alberta, and this woman sends a, or one of the, the administrators sends a picture of a truffle or some hypogeus fungi. And what is this? Can you identify it? And basically I said, well, this is a hypogeus fungi. It's truffle like it puts out beautiful aromas and, and uh, feeds the squirrels and stuff like that. Can't really tell what it is, um, you know, from, from a photograph, but you can send it in and we can figure it out. And the next question is, well, don't really care that much, but how do we get rid of it? And, uh, and, and you go, well, well, how do you get rid of it? Well, that's easy because it's a mycorrhizal fungi. So basically what you have to do is you have to kill all your trees and dig them up, take the roots out. And besides being food for all of these animals, well, we don't care about the animals. We just want to know how to get rid of it. And it's this pervading attitude, you know, of, well, let's pave paradise and, you know, and put up a parking lot. And, and so much of this stuff, as, as humanity, I think our biggest hope is, is that we get to appreciate other species. I mean, when we look at fungi, I mean, how they interact with things outside of their kingdom. I mean, you know, with bacteria and with, with, with all the insects that it, that it deals with and creates and cooperates and, and competes with, you know, it's just, it's a phenomenal thing and not just cooperates, cooperates and competes. But it's also very, it's, it also is a lesson to us that here it is. It's, it's creating a, a relationship with a, with an orchid seedling and feeding the orchid, you know, and the orchid's not giving it anything back. I mean, eventually it, it might or it will, but it's willing to invest that just on the principle of, of that cooperation that, that in the long term, these things have to exist. And if we can actually, bring that attitude into our space is the tolerance. I think the tolerance of each other and the tolerance of, especially of other species, you know, I mean, 
you know, if it's cute and got good brown, nice big brown eyes, you know, we're, we're, we're all for it. But if it's a, a, a flying mosquito or something like that, all of a sudden it's just, yeah, you know, we, we can kill that one and not respect that. But, uh, so at times I don't get a lot of, uh, of hope for us as a species. I mean, I have a lot of hope for the planet because at one, at one point, we won't be here, you know, so climate change and all of that stuff and all of the things that are happening, um, you know, we really need to change our character and, uh, and, and some of the lessons from how fungi live is really the lessons that we need to adopt, you know, we need to work hard and we need to cooperate and we need to compete and we need, and we need to be altruistic and we need to help help the struggling ones in the economy and share and share the bounty that we're in. But um, anyways, I don't know if that's where you wanted to go with it, but uh, no, it's a really beautiful answer. And I think so many of us see that hope that by better understanding these fungal organisms, it naturally changes. Yeah. Our own character, how we approach each other, how we approach other organisms. You know, I've observed that happening to so many mycophiles that they begin that journey through this relationship with fungi. Really a poetic answer. Uh, Martin, thank you so much for coming on the show, covering really a massive amount of issues, but eloquently leaving details and breadcrumbs that so many of us are going to be able to go research now and leaving us with some insights that also really give us pause to think. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure to interview. Well, you're very welcome. And when you did introduce me... Uh... You mentioned that, that I can go on and on and on about mushrooms. Well, I just wanted to to make sure that uh, that uh, that I lived up to that that introduction. <laughs> <laughs>